Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello from Buffalo, and welcome to In Social Work. My name is Luann Back, and I'll be your host for this episode. The Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, or IDIC, is part of the Buffalo Center for Social Research and the University of Buffalo School of Social Work, and is dedicated to providing the public with information on trauma, adversity, and its impact. Since its inception in 2012, IDIC has provided training, education, and consulting to a wide variety of organizations and systems, both for-profit and not-for-profit, on trauma-informed organizational change. In this episode, Professor Susan A. Green, co-director of IDIC, discusses the increased interest among organizations and systems to provide a trauma-informed approach to care and to plan for, implement, and sustain trauma-informed organizational change. She explores what it means and why it is important for an organization to consider becoming trauma-informed. Professor Green describes the experiences of organizations as they transformed into being trauma-informed, along with the type of benefits and outcomes that have been observed among clients and staff. The episode concludes with a short discussion on resources that are available for organizations interested in becoming trauma-informed, including IDIC's Trauma-Informed Organizational Change Manual and current policy level changes that have been initiated at the national level. Susan A. Green, LCSW, is currently a clinical professor here at the UB School of Social Work. She is certified as an EMDR therapist and in advanced critical incident stress management and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Professor Green has taught numerous courses, including social work interventions, trauma theory and treatment, risk and resilience, and diversity, and has been working with various groups and individuals for over 20 years as both a special educator and social worker. Professor Green was interviewed in May 2019 by Dr. Nancy J. Smith, Dean and Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Well, hello everyone. This is Nancy Smith at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work, and I'm really happy today to be here with Professor Susan Green, who is also at our university. And I actually had asked her to do this podcast basically because I've been hearing more and more nationally about people's interest in creating trauma-informed organizations, and we'll be talking a lot about what that means and how to do that. And here's the thing is that Susan Green, while she's a faculty here at our school, she also is co-director of the Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, which we'll be spending a little bit talking about that and what that is and why she started that. And then about experiences doing trauma-informed transformation of organizations. And then also hear a little bit about a manual that they've created, which actually is free and downloadable, which hopefully puts this stuff all together so others can start to do this work. Sue, thank you for agreeing to do this. Well, thank you. What an honor. I'm excited to hear because I'm always loving to hear your stories. Can you tell us about what is the 
Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, and why did you create it? So the Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care is actually an arm of the Buffalo Social Research Center, which is part of the School of Social Work. And I was in a conversation actually with you, my dean, that we were discussing the fact that it seemed as if the community was asking more and more for some information about what is this thing called trauma, let alone how it is that they could think about delivering services at the various spots. Have that be an addiction organization, a school, who are working with folks with mental health issues, that they were finding that as they learned more about what trauma was, that they wanted to be more effective in their responses. So as a faculty member at the school, I was being asked to actually do trainings, doing coaching or consultation in the community, and the demand was exceeding my own ability or others' ability to respond. So as a school, actually, we got support to start this institute. Right. Well, that's taken me back in time a moment to think about those days. So one of the things I remember us talking about was the difference between an organization deciding to provide specific trauma treatment services and then the whole way that an organization works with people. Mm -hmm. And that this was some of the distinction that you were trying to start to work with organizations about. Can you clarify what that is, those differences? Absolutely. I first need to absolutely credit, though, part of our expert panel that is part of the Trauma Institute and Drs. Sandra Bloom, Roger Fallett, Lisa Najovitz and Lisa Butler, all of them helped us think about how we were positioned in being part of the university to take this idea of being responsive to organizations at a level that hopefully could really sustain organizations in a different way than private practitioners. So with that being said, in that guidance, we found that certainly Dr. Bloom's sanctuary model, along with Maxine Harris and Roger Fallett's organizational model in regards to paying attention to policies, paying attention, bottom line, to how you do business seems to be a huge factor in individuals' ability to respond and to move towards health, if you will. So we've come to a place at this time to concretize as best as we can. We think about trauma service delivery as having three levels. First, it's an overarching level, and that is the informed component, and that's where Every person within an organization, actually based on your mission and your values, can pay attention to ensuring things like emotional and physical safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, and empowerment. And with that being said, our second level that we speak about is something called trauma-sensitive, and that's when you start to go beyond it being a thought process of it's more about how you do business day in and day out. So we we find that organizations are wanting to take a look at things like their intake process, the languaging that is in their policy handbooks or employee handbooks, signage in terms of in the building, how it is that they think about dealing with one another in terms of HR practices, human resource practices, let alone what's available to the staff, just knowing that the impact of the work matters. And so how are we taking care of our workforce in that way? That's all trauma-sensitive. Trauma-sensitive is also having to do with choices made around what types of assessments, what type of service delivery options an organization is going to use. So the key that we learned is that probably most 
individuals are in roles that are providing both informed and sensitive service delivery, and it's a very small percentage of the helpers that are doing what we call trauma-specific work. Trauma-specific work, that's the trauma treatment. And the way that we think about it, it's similar to if you were a person who needed a knee replacement, you go to a knee specialist, right? You don't go to your GP. Your GP would refer you to the knee replacement doc. And similarly, when we're talking about trauma-specific treatment, it's those treatments that have been researched and are part of evidence-based practice delivery. And there are therapists, there are individuals that certainly know these treatment strategies, yet they've been certified or licensed to do that. And most of the other work is everybody else, right? It's an hour a week, if you will. Sometimes it might be more than that. It could be an hour every other week that individuals are getting trauma-specific treatment, but what about the other 23 hours? Well, and I'm guessing that that's true for organizations that are providing, say, mental health or some type of intervention, but now a school system might not have any trauma-specific services. It might just be a school that does trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive. Absolutely. And so what's been really fascinating to watch in regards to the last few years specifically, with schools, there's been a true desire, it seems, to want to pay attention very deliberately to social and emotional health, let alone, obviously, academics. And so as people have learned the science about what's behind trauma, let alone adversity, they are noting that when we are able to neutralize our environment to not re-trigger symptoms of trauma, it allows us to be in a spot of what they're calling the new universal precaution. Similarly, many of us have learned about universal precaution in the past around you put gloves on and if there's uh, body fluid, you're not asking the questions about what's wrong here. You're just getting rid of the body fluid. You're protecting yourself in terms of gloves on. So for people that don't know that, the universal precaution came about when HIV was becoming something that we were all watching for. And instead of saying, I'm just going to put these gloves on who have HIV, obviously we may not know. Let's just assume that everybody might have something that we want to protect everyone from being exposed to things that they don't need to be exposed to and just take this precaution with everyone. Correct. Because actually, as we've learned the numbers in terms of percentage of people that actually have had some type of adverse or trauma experience in their life, it's higher than we would have ever believed. So when you take that type of precaution, it puts all of us in a position to be sensitive and informed. So some of the schools that we work with, if not districts, we are calling it trauma-informed educational practice. We've learned from others that this idea of calling everything care is a little bit tough to swallow for some of these organizations or systems because certainly they care about people, but it's not really their job to do a piece of what mental health services might do or what addiction services might do. We're also involved with hospitals and we call it trauma-informed medicine. And so the way that trauma-informed approach is being talked about is just, as I said, approach, and certainly it comes from care. Okay, so for listeners who haven't tracked this field, really the push for trauma-informed care came initially within treatment clinics, which is why people use the phrase care, because if we're going to provide care for people. And now what you're saying is as this has changed and become something that people are beginning to say, 
say, really, we should be assuming this is the norm for many people who've come in to receive services anywhere. And it's not just about care. It's about how we do business in our society. Correct. Then we're calling it something a little bit different. Yes. Okay. And what's been actually quite rewarding for us at the Trauma Institute is that we are getting asks from actual businesses and for-profit organizations out there, meaning that those that are in the production world and or the retail world. It is moving beyond truly even just human service delivery. It's just knowing that any business deals with humans. And therefore, when we're dealing with each other, it's using this universal precaution. Okay. Well, now it's interesting you'd say that because I was talking to someone in the community who was, they just built a new building and they were complaining about the fact that it was a very open design with a lot of windows. They were complaining about the fact that staff were complaining about that work environment. Mm -hmm. And they were sort of saying, oh, you know, look how everybody complains. And I said, well, here, you know what? I said, a large number of people grew up in families where there might have been physical abuse or when we're abuser is watching people all the time and in an environment where you feel like people are watching all the time might actually trigger anxiety in people they might not realize it's connected to those old experiences but they know they don't feel safe and they feel on edge at work and so if you have a really open environment with lots of windows without involving your employees in a process where they can shape that environment a little bit and maybe you know get some shades and things that bring the visibility down you're inadvertently triggering maybe Maybe a subset of folks, and that's maybe part of what's driving the complaining. And the person looked at me like, huh, that never occurred to me. But would that be kind of an example of what you're talking about in terms of businesses? Well, businesses and I would say most delivery systems. Um, You know, you just talked at a depth of really critiquing what we've learned to be true about that when people have been exposed to adversity and trauma, often in their adult happenings, or even it doesn't even have to be an adult, we're not overly conscious, if you will, of how things might be connected, if you will, to Mm -hmm. other things. And so that's the piece that we've learned that when organizations or systems choose to become trauma-informed, they are realizing that this is really a digestive process. It takes a while. It takes actually a bit of a long time to be in a spot to think through, if you will, all of the possibilities. So that's where we are finding that people are, okay, we know this thing about trauma. What do we do about it now? So that's the very thing of those kind of conversations, if not considerations, that folks are finding, oh, okay, that does make some sense, as you just said. Okay. So you mentioned working with medical health systems and school systems and potentially now businesses getting interested, and then, of course, places that provide mental health, addiction treatment, services to children. Are there any other types of organizations that you've been working with to help them become trauma-informed? Yeah, actually, two of my staff right now are in a Department of Social Services outside of New York. York, working with a local county. So I would say social service systems. We've been involved with corrections and or those that are even in a level of probation law enforcement. That's pretty wide then. Okay. So that's my impression. So I think it's great for people to hear that there's this huge spectrum of different types of organizations. So what have you learned about how to help an organization transform into being trauma-informed? What's that process? My co-director, Dr. Tom Nahowski, has helped all of us take note of the fact that each 
organization really is at their own beginning place. And so each one really needs to take a very deliberate look at what are we doing already that matches how it is that we're already doing business that's trauma-informed. So thus an evaluation. And so there's a baseline that I would say all spots that we go into truly, if they're looking at having an organizational shift, they're taking a look at their readiness for change, let alone what is happening already. And so the beauty, we believe, of this whole model is that there's no set point that says that, okay, you got it. And every organization is going to have really their own profile in regards to taking note of what's realistic for them to pay attention to if they want to put either resources and or attention around something and what's their best hope of where they want to move towards. Okay, so you start with an assessment that then really builds on what the strengths and the desires of that organization are and create a path to go forward yep. based upon who you are working with and what their goals are, you got what it. your assessment sort of says. And then you sort of hinted at something else there that suggested to me that, well, there's a point that an organization may say, well, we've done a lot of changes, that this is an ongoing process. It's not like, okay, we're done. We don't have to worry about this anymore. Would that be true? Absolutely. And so I'll just take a medical setting, for example. Many a times you will hear from folks, wait a minute, I only have five minutes with the person. And so I'm not sure what it is that you're going to be able to tell us that we could do different. However, we're interested in knowing is what we're doing making it any worse for somebody. And so lots of times it's people looking at their processes And also then, again, the workforce component in terms of what the policies, how it is that they are with each other, and really identifying what is their role. And I think there's a relief that comes for people that we're not asking people to intentionally ask people about their trauma all the time. Actually, this frees, I think, people up to learn the fact that it's probably not so helpful to do that, and it's probably not their job. And it's being more systematic around how it is that we can be more helpful to people versus hurtful. So an example of that, maybe in a totally different type of setting, maybe like a chiropractor who will work on people and manipulate their back and some things like that. They don't need to ask about trauma, but maybe they need to tell people what they're doing before they do it. In exactly. other words, instead of touching somebody just out of the blue, sort of say, I'm going to do this right now, and then I'm going to do this. And does that sound okay? And sort of checking in with someone that that simple modification would be an example of giving someone more control and a more of a collaborative process then I simply lie down on a table and now I do some things to you. And, you know, if you've been sexually assaulted at some point in your life, that could be hugely triggering. And along with then even that practice, we're in a couple hospitals and they've deliberately started to look at, wait a minute, we ask these same questions five times by the time somebody gets to a certain spot. And not even just about trauma, but other things. It's really looking at how it is that they're doing business. That's a hard decision sometimes because that takes work Mm -hmm. on an organization's part to make the decision of, you know what, it makes most sense though that this is where we can put some energy in, but it's going to take up to a year, if you will, before all those processes change. Right. And so part of that would be looking at whoever you're providing services to and probably getting inputs from them about how they're experiencing the processes or service system. That would be ideal. I think lots of places do satisfaction surveys or some level of feedback from their client, student, patient, so they 
may have that data already. Oh, okay. Just to go back to the evaluation piece for a moment, what's been fascinating and thrilling to see is that actually organizations are able to get tools free at this point to take some of their own baseline evaluation. So with that being said, it's not always a major cost that folks are finding that they have to invest in money-wise, cost certainly in other ways, but money-wise to really start to move towards this idea of being trauma-informed. So they may already have data they've got, but also I'm going to guess that your manual includes some assessment tools as well. Yep. We actually have one that was created by Dr. Travis Hales and Tom Nahowski. It's a quick look, 10 question, new one for folks to get a beginning look, but we have an extensive one that we use at the Institute, but we have a resource area that lists other tools that are available on the web, if you will, in terms of folks making their own decisions about what makes most sense. We do collaborate at times with Trauma-Informed Oregon, which is, I'll just promote that website, that they provide really an abundance of materials, and they have created their own trauma-informed evaluation tools that folks can download for free. Well, now, let me ask you, an organization decides they want to do this because they're starting to understand how many people they work with have been affected by trauma, and they become, say, trauma-informed. They really work with the whole organization to do that. What kinds of benefits do organizations see after they've made these changes? So this information is anecdotal at this point. We are in the beginning part of this field in terms of being able to express outcomes. Mm -hmm. However, the last couple of years, not just us, but certainly across the country world, there is more information coming out. For example, just the couple of spots that we've been in that I could speak very deliberately to is less restraints. In terms of restraining kids? um, Physical hands-on restraining. Okay, because people Um, are out of control. Correct. The less turnover of staff in terms of looking at a two-year period. Addiction agency that we were working with, they didn't anticipate this was going to be the case, but unplanned discharges had reduced significantly, like lots of percentages, after they became trauma-sensitive, if you will. So they would have what they call AWOLs, so people that would just leave unplanned, and the numbers in terms of that reduced significantly. So we work with a local hospital, and they're talking about the emergency room stay and the component of really the numbers are reduced in terms of time frame of people coming back. That's anecdotal and that's the beginning piece of us looking at those numbers and I know that that's people's best hope is to match. Obviously, we're going to invest in this and it being matched. Actually, there is now policy happening across the country, if not federally, uh, local states, that people have become aware of the fact that they want to tie outcomes to delivery of services being sensitive, if not informed. So there's more data collection happening so that we can demonstrate and see whether or not this is really something that makes sense for an investment. Okay, so there's the client outcome level and then and the client experience also, I mean, yeah. things like restraints and such. But you also mentioned staff turnover as a potential factor that is affected by this. Correct. And that's certainly something that costs organizations a huge amount of money. I just want to highlight something that I know in conversations with people about creating a trauma-sensitive organization is it's not just focusing on how you treat your clients. It's the whole organization. Yeah. So it's also how staff are treated. Is that true? Oh, yeah. I'll just give an example that it's really about modeling the 
the model. And I'll take our school, for example. There was a statement made about, yeah, I feel unsafe walking into this bathroom because there's this hidden area that nobody can see anything. And, and actually, there was a mirror put into the bathroom spot that would show whoever walked into that bathroom, hey, you can see what's going on. A very simple solution in some ways to a outcry, if you will, from folks saying this doesn't feel okay. And leadership took it on as, uh, I hear you, and we'll invest, and here's the deal. And there was a turnaround within, let's say, a couple of weeks. And when folks feel as if their administration, if not their leadership, is modeling the model, let alone their employee practices, are also in a spot that universal precaution is being used there. So a lot of the folks are asking now for how do we do trauma-informed supervision? How is it that we do training in a way of our new employees with new hire that would allow us to be in a spot with them that they are experiencing these components of what the essence is, if you will, mm-hmm. of being sensitive and informed in a way that gives them the message that they're safe, if you will. So really thinking about every piece of what we're doing with employees from this lens. It's sort of a more of a paradigm shift in a lot of ways. It absolutely is. Uh, and that's where Sandra Bloom will talk about, and I think she might have even said it in one of our podcasts here, it's like rolling a boulder uphill if you are looking to try to shift an organization and leadership isn't right at the table from the beginning and it really is more of a top-down approach. Okay. So I'm curious then, as you've worked with organizations, do do you make decisions to not work with an organization if the leadership's not on board, or do you adjust your plan in some way? I would say that we try to adjust the plan as much as possible because generally we aren't out looking for business. Generally, people <laughs> contact us. Okay. And so there's been an interest expressed, at least by one or a few, from a spot saying, we want this to happen. Right. So we want to work with what's there already, if possible. But we're very deliberate in letting folks know what's possible then. But the larger systems, if the superintendent or the board is not at the table, we have said, let's wait on this until you get them on board. So then maybe talking even about what would be the strategy to help to build support before you move to a committing to transform an organization. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're very strategic about that. It sounds yes. like you don't want to waste your efforts and waste their efforts. Oh, yeah. Uh, that could just increase more frustration for people. So I have a comment that I want to make about mm-hmm. that because it's the piece that we're seeing is that as people are learning about this idea, what we at the Trauma Institute really try to caution around is that we call it content dumps. That when you expose people to the information about what is trauma, and adversity, and it's only in a one-time shot, meaning that you bring all your staff, all your employees together, and you educate them for two hours on what this stuff is. I get very cautious, if not worried, and sometimes say don't do it, to be honest with you, if there's not a plan for at least some level of follow-up. Trauma is something that people generally, let's just keep it back there. It's an issue that we want to avoid. Who wants to bring it up and put it in front of you? And so if we're stirring the pot at all and there's not a plan in regards to how it is that we can be present at least to this information and where I see it happen is Dr. Zanda and Vincent Folletti back in what 94 is when the adverse childhood experience study was first published and that movement of looking at what they're calling the ACE study at this time ACE information is really overwhelming information at times for people to first digest and that's just for people that don't know it's sort of an assessment where you 
fill out a bunch of questions about what you were exposed to in childhood. And these are the adverse childhood experiences that bear huge prediction value for health and mental health problems across society, really. But to just ask me to fill that out and then there's no follow-up could really be overwhelming and really re-traumatizing to people. And it has happened that way. So that's a good example of what you've learned about what doesn't work, what Mm -hmm. is not helpful. Are there any other things that you've seen that I wouldn't do that right now or this is the better strategy because this other thing we did really sort of crashes and burns? Because it really does take a lot of over big picture thinking. If you really do want to move your organization Mm-hmm. and or the system, when somebody's not assigned the task of thinking about that, it is well-intended people that are often not in a spot to give it the energy and the determination that it needs to at least continue on the continued path. Okay, so you need people who have the job of thinking about this. Yes. You know, it's my job to wake up and think about this trauma-informed and how it's relating to our organization or our service system in some way. Now, you've developed a process, I am mean, remembering where you develop champions Mm -hmm. in these organizations to sort of work with them over time. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's an organization identifying who within your organization really, number one, would want to do this and who makes sense in terms of formal or informal power to be able to actually carry it through. So really having more than one champion is helpful. Having voice from folks that are across the organization, from direct care employee to the person that's receiving services or a union member or certainly then somebody who would be an administrator, etc. So it's a combination. You have a team of at least two or three, if not more, that would be in your organization and it allows for then a cross-pollination to occur and people have different experiences at each of those levels and how to then be in a spot that lots of organizations, they don't have a full-time TI, trauma-informed person that they've hired. Some have, that it that is their job. We have a system recently in Texas, a full healthcare system that literally hired one of our graduates who is the TI person for all the healthcare centers to keep an eye on things, them knowing that, you know what, we all have the desire, but we all have these other jobs that we have to do. Other organizations, it's, you know, two hours a month or maybe even two hours a week. Or how is it that they meet at least once a month as a committee to make sure they're crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And then when you work with an organization over time, you are having some regular contact with those champions? Yep. We would consider our our best hope in terms of working with folks is that we would, we call it, we have FaceTime with them each month so that we're able to be either via net or we certainly Skype in or WebEx in or Zoom in. And if people are not local, that we're at least meeting with them for an hour a month. And when we have local contracts, we are actually in-house doing one-on-one coaching. We're 10 to 15 hours per month that we're actually on the floors or in the classroom or in the business, if you will, in terms of working with folks, looking at policy handbooks, looking at supervision, watching, observing classrooms, real-time feedback. Okay. That's something that seems to have been more helpful to organizations when they make this change. Yes. So the, the manual that you've developed, where, as you said, people are in all different roles, you rolled this manual out not that long ago. When did you guys Actually, uh, it was it? Uh, just January of 2019 okay. is when it was published. Okay. And it's out. People can request it through your website.
website, right? Yes. In the School of Social Work, University of Buffalo School of Social Work, you would look for the Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, which is underneath the Research Center. However, the email sw-ittic at buffalo.edu, that's our institute email. If you were to just email there, we would then send you, you just say request the manual and we would send it out to you okay. if you don't get to the website. You mean you've already had almost 3,000 requests? Mm-hmm. And that's without really doing much public announcement of this. You got it. And I'm just looking at the roles of people who've requested this. I mean, it's everything from directors to instructors, case managers, child protective services workers, graduate students, teachers, crime victims, specialists, attorneys, deputy chiefs, deans, physicians, chaplains. I mean, this is all over the map here. Nurses, people across quality and compliance, office people. That sort of captures that these people with interest can be anywhere in an organization. And I think you said something about formal and informal power, that there are people who, by virtue of who they are, may have a lot of influence in an organization, even if they're not the one who's technically in a position to create policies, but they influence others. So that's kind of exciting that you've already had that kind of impact with the manual, really, without even trying much. And then I think, what is it, already 37 states and 10 countries you've been getting requests from? I know. I just, I feel so excited at the idea that I am, it's all about me right now, but living on the planet at a time that actually people are interested in hearing about this. It brings me such hope to take notice of really across the world, individuals are really interested in how to do this work. Because actually what we've learned, Nancy, is that at the end of the day, most people really want to be more helpful than hurtful. And this whole idea of being trauma sensitive and informed and when we're knowledgeable about just taking notice in that way it's just tweaking a lot of things that a lot of folks already do but being more intentional about it and the manual really lays out for folks a step-by-step way for them to think about what's already happening we did a lot of research certainly with the guidance of our expert panel to to know what's it take to be a trauma-informed organization so the manual is laid out with what they, we call 10 key developmental areas which are influenced by SAMHSA's, which is Substance Use Mental Health Services. They had a 10-domain piece that they put out about five years ago saying, this is what it means to be trauma-informed. And so it connects those dots, and it allows spots to be in a place of taking notice of how are we looking at our training, supervision, hiring practices, policy, leadership, communication, finances, Mm -hmm. things that businesses just do all the time. Mm And it gives some language around that. Sandra Bloom, she has the Cadillac version, I would say, of creating a system or a trauma-informed organization using the sanctuary model and hiring the Sanctuary Institute. That's a huge investment. There are many places, though, that aren't in a spot that they can hire out something like that. They want to make small steps, if not at least more affordable steps. Mm -hmm. And so this manual gives anybody the opportunity to take a look. Take a look for yourself and see what makes sense. So the sanctuary sanctuary model that she's got is something people can contract for, but that's very expensive, ongoing system. Mm-hmm. But not everybody's in a position to start there anyway. But there's also other models. I mean, there's other ways to get to here. For that's sure. part of what I'm hearing you say is by starting where an organization is and looking at their strengths and their interests, a path forward can be carved using a manual as the guide that will look different for one organization versus another. You got it. And then it gives a template. We would hear from people, uh, is this trauma-informed or is this the way to do it? 
it. So this manual, in our opinion, gives people that information of how to think about this. Okay. So someone comes and gets this manual and decides we're going to try doing this. Are there any sort of tips or advice you'd have for them in terms of starting? Read the whole thing first. (laughs) Okay. Because it really is in the sections that it's in because we have three stages. There's pre-implementation, implementation, and sustainability. And some of the things that are going on in an organization truly might be in implementation stage, yet something else might be haven't even quite started yet. And those same key developmental areas are, as you look at the full manual, you'll see what's happening in pre-implementation is also happening in implementation and is also happening in sustainability. There's just different questions that one is to ask depending on those areas. Okay. So reading through the whole manual gives people enough of an overview that they're better able to start to strategize. And it's a little cumbersome in the sense of people see the manual, they're like, all right, this is quite large. It has a lot of appendices though. (laughs) So there's a lot of tools and quick guides to help people. So know that we think it's a pretty easy read. It's got sections, but get the big picture first, then dive in. All right. Well, that sounds like good advice. A good starting place for folks. Was there anything else that you thought would be important for people to understand? I mean, we've talked a little bit about this whole process about why this is important and how to go about doing it, and then a little bit about the policy perspective. I would like to add that it is happening right now. We're July 24, 2019 is when we're taping this right now. But it was literally on July 11th, 2019, that it was the first hearing in Congress that was held on trauma to the House Oversight and Reform Committee. And so it was a couple of panels that were there. So I've been told that there was actually a standing ovation in regards to the information that was received. It was a few hours long. And And I don't think this is going away. And part of the gift that I've been given in terms of being at the Institute is that I get to be in a spot that I hear about things, right? So I've I've seen where across the United States, states, New York State being one of them, just in the last couple of years, there's been absolute movement around resolution, bills, policies, oversight pieces of people saying this has to be in the way that we do business. In all of our organizations and all of our communities. And the many systems. I mean, you were in the field 20 years ago, and you were a pioneer in the Western New York area in regards to certainly having folks consider the fact that trauma exists. And that was, we're talking what, in the early 90s? Late 80s, early 90s. And so the platform is really different in 2019 than when you were pushing that boulder uphill. Back in those days, it was about talking to mental health system people about the fact that all the things we were doing to help people we're sometimes hurting them inadvertently. Like someone gets taken down and with restraints on an inpatient unit and nobody considers the fact that you have a whole unit of people seeing this who many of whom grew up in abusive families and now they've seen something that looked a lot like, you know, being abused and that that's triggered them all off. And then you end up with a whole group of people being anxious and upset or nightly bed checks in an inpatient unit to see if people are still there. But for a sexual abuse survivor, those nightly bed checks might actually be triggering them to wake up in terror. So that's the level we were at back in the 90s, right? Right. And we were certainly thinking about how do you do assessments in ways that are collaborative and not 
sort of showing power over folks. But nobody at that time was thinking about, at least not that I remember, how we run everything yeah. from how our communities plan to yeah. how organizational systems work. And yet it does make sense. I mean, I remember we were educating students early here who then were going to work in agencies and then getting burned out because they knew what clients should be getting right. and agencies weren't providing it and they just couldn't tolerate working there anymore. So that's the problem about educating people but not addressing the system concerns. So it's exciting. I didn't know about the hearings in Congress. I know, That's right? amazing. So there's a lot of ways people can be thinking about this. The manual will be helpful for those who want to get a free copy to think about transforming organizations, but it sounds like there's a lot of policy levels people can be tracking this and taking action as well. Well, thank you for taking the time out from all of your consultation and training work in this area. I'm excited to see what people do with the manual if they choose to get it, and yeah. if not, they just have a slightly different way to think about doing all the things that social work does. Again, thank you, Nancy. You've been listening to Professor Susan A. Green's discussion on creating and sustaining trauma-informed organizations. I'm Luann Beck. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.